0: taking a look at this story coming out of the City of Vancouver. And City Council has voted in favour of demanding fossil fuel companies pay their share of costs related to the impacts of climate change. This is a motion passed 7-4, to and it points to a B.C. government report that projects the City of Vancouver will have to spend about a billion dollars this century mitigating rising sea levels. The motion asks for Mayor Kennedy Stewart to write on behalf of council to 20 fossil fuel companies with the highest percentage of greenhouse gas emissions to ask that they be held accountable for their share of climate emergency costs. And we've seen letters written and requests written in other municipalities in this province, uh, including Victoria, Whistler, West Vancouver, uh, Port Moody. And you'll probably remember when Whistler did this, there was a big backlash backlash when it came to a conference being held in that municipality. So to Talk more about this. Let's bring in Stuart Muir. He is the executive director at Resource Works. Stuart, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thank you. Good morning. Uh,
0: what is your response to uh, now, City of Vancouver uh, taking the step uh, of asking, uh, sending these letters to, to big oil companies, saying you need to pick up this bill?
1: Well, I think they've accepted the request of a, a fairly radical proposition. Uh, a group, West Coast Environmental Law, that's also, by the way, a group that. It's fought against the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which is, you know, it, at the end of the day, a pretty popular project. Uh, but they've got to do other things too, and this is one of them. Uh, it's been tried in the U.S. I think the Netherlands this kind of approach. So far, it hasn't really had any traction. the The idea is that they will write these letters to oil companies like the National Oil Company of Iran and Iraq, and they'll say, "Look, we've we've got a calculation a professor has done saying that you're responsible for this much X percent of all these emissions," and so we looked at our costs for having to adapt our environment in Vancouver. Maybe it's, you know, it could be things like storm drains that in future, maybe they need more capacity. You know, just imagine the different things that require spending of this kind. And that's real spending because it's a real problem. But uh, they're, they're asking for a monetary contribution that is proportionate. And they've got a little calculation they do of X percent. And, and then they just sit back. And I guess the idea is to wait for the checks to roll in. But of course, it's it's ludicrous. There's, it's just unthinkable. Can you imagine being the president of the uh, Iranian oil company? And this, this letter arrives from Canada, from a city with the uh, you know, highest real estate values, the most, the most uh, wealthy population you can imagine, the highest living standard, the new world index today, Canada's number one in the world. In terms of living standard, this letter rolls into a country with a lot of poor people struggling and uh making such a demand. So it seems like a, a kind of theatrical thing that they're asking the city to do. And the question I would move to from there is, well, is it a good idea? Is there a benefit to residents of Vancouver from this happening? That's a question I would ask. And I, and I, sub- I actually have an answer too. But Okay. What's your answer to that question? Okay. Yeah. Um, no, seriously, I would say that I, I see this as, here's a term, uh, a radical incrementalist approach. I think what the strategy of this group is, and they have these law professors at UBC who came in. Um, they had some children who, who gave quite an emotional performance that I think affected some of the counselors about climate change, an issue that's, that's a, a serious one, but I think we've seen it sort of brought to a, out of a, a certain level in 2019 that we haven't seen before in terms of this, this public stage. But I think the, the idea that it's all of the problems are caused by foreign oil companies, and if we sue them, we will have solved the problem, well, that that uh belies all of the efforts that are being made in Canada, in British Columbia, in Vancouver. There are policies galore. There's very serious you know, policy people in, in City Hall who are working on this. I can tell you I've seen the correspondence from the Minister of Environment of British Columbia, George Heyman, who's from, from uh Vancouver, who said, Look, uh in response to your request, uh, West Vancouver was writing uh, we've looked at the situation and, and no, we won't be giving you the legal powers to pursue this. So thank you very much. Um, and by the way, here's all the things we are doing to protect the environment and the climate. So, you know, that's going to be the response going up the legal chain. And I think just you think ahead to years from now, suppose they do this one day. You, can you imagine the climate emergency propositions have been accepted, the climate litigation? And then the next thing we'll have is these groups coming and saying, "Okay, since you've accepted that this is something you have to start suing everybody about because it's so wrong, we've noticed that you have some uh, diesel-powered snowplows and garbage trucks, and you're going to have to sue yourself because you are criminals. Um, I mean, that's slightly ahead of ourselves, but this is the kind of outcome I think, you know, incrementally trying to push governments to put themselves into positions where they can't do certain things. And let's look at the basic fact 74% of Canadians' energy, all energy, is from fossil fuels today. That's the reality. And it's probably true that 74% or more of the innovation to in- improve our energy is going to come from improving fossil fuels, not from suing ourselves and not using them at all, because that's not going to happen.
0: It does seem like a bit of a head-scratcher, and it, as you said, it almost looks a bit theatrical. And when you look at the example of Victoria and Vancouver, here are two cities Mm -hmm. that benefit greatly from the cruise ship industry. So why are they not also then suing the cruise ship industry, which is one of the major polluters, uh, and and in fact, like you said, then suing themselves for benefiting from this industry?
1: Well, it's a fine line, and I think they don't want to get the public so outraged that they're pointing to you know, these these weird examples that exactly like you have pointed to Joe, because then that would just defeat the whole thing. So I think they've been very careful. As soon as they discovered last fall that when a Canadian oil company got one of these letters from Whistler and a lot of people were upset by it, they said, Okay, we're gonna stop doing that. We're gonna just you know find this list of of of, of countries and oil companies that, you know, most people have never even heard of. They've heard of the countries but these companies and we're gonna harass them. Um and then no one locally is gonna get offended by that. So To me, that seems like a a kind of cheap way to avoid the negatives of it and not really facing the consequences of such a strategy.
0: Uh, we do see things. Uh, the one, the example that came to my mind uh, in BC was plastics and that companies that p- provide goods that are packaged in plastics, uh, they are now required to to cover the cost of that plastics and the recycling throughout the life of it. So we do kind of hold some companies accountable. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think, is there a way there, is there any room there where, where oil companies have a bigger role to play in the impact they have?
1: Well, I, I think if you start to look what At what actually happens now because there's an enormous amount of regulation and economic uh, effects from oil companies operating in Canada, oil and gas companies. They are severely restricted in how they have to operate. They pay not just royalties, but taxes. They employ people who then pay taxes themselves. Whenever they they move things, they pay tolls to move things on pipelines. That's money that's created. In all of these ways, we are pricing the resource and, getting benefit from these resources, which are owned by the people of Canada, of British Columbia. So it's, it's only right that these benefits should you know, go to, to these mitigations. But it's not as if we don't have those in spades already. Now, not just we shouldn't have more or improve them, but they do exist.
0: All right, uh, Stuart, we'll have to leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us on this long weekend. Have a great rest of your weekend.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Well, if you've ever uh, checked out Canada's population clock, you likely know it can be a little addictive when you're playing around on it. Looking at it right now, it says that the population change since midnight is 935. There is a birth every one minute, 17 seconds. There is a death every two minutes. And you can look right across the country, province to province as well. The population clock has been running for about a year now. So let's talk about the clock, the importance of it, uh, the concerns with it. Howard Ramos is a professor of sociology at Dalhousie University and joins us on the line to talk more about this. Uh, Professor, thanks so much for being with us.
2: Oh, my pleasure. Good morning.
0: Uh, Do you think this is an important tool for Canadians?
2: I certainly think it's an important tool. I think that most of us learn about our demography and social studies sometime in uh, middle school, and then our, our portrait of the country gets frozen then. And so what's really great about this tool is it allows us to see what's going on right now.
0: Uh, I guess some concerns people have that it, it's it's like we're being tracked or being watched every minute of the day. Do you have any concerns of it being kind of this big brother uh, clock?
2: Not at all, because the clock's not actually a real-time clock. It, it's updated uh, quarterly, so there's four times throughout the year that it's updated. And based on those four updates... Uh, It creates these models that give us this real-time picture. So it's not really a real-time clock. It's uh, simulating a real-time. And and in terms of its quarterly updates, all the information it's getting is from things like the census, uh, from immigration records. And it's not treating it as individuals. It's treating it as a whole block of people. So we don't know. A specific person that's moving or the p- specific person being born. We just know that somebody's being born.
0: Right. And what do you do or what do you think people can take away from the information, whether it's learning about birth rate, death rate, and what's happening in other provinces?
2: Well, I think that uh, a, a whole ton of things can be uh, learned from this. Uh, one is it shows the importance of immigration. Immigration is a huge component to our country in terms of making sure that we have a a strong population. Uh, It gives an illustration of interprovincial migration. So many people used to be moving from my region in Atlantic Canada going out west to the oil patch. Well, now people are moving back to, to my region. So it allows us to kind of bust some of the myths we might have about what we think about the population.
0: I, and I'm just looking at it right now. It says one immigrant every one minute, 37 seconds, one emigrant every eight minutes, 43 seconds. Uh, is that the kind of information you're saying that that uh, we, we might not think about if we didn't have access to it?
2: I, I certainly think that's definitely the case. I mean, one that I think is really important for Canadians to look at is most of us live uh, in the southern part of the country. We live in Vancouver, uh, Toronto, Montreal. Uh, and we kind of lose sight of, you know, what the rest of the country looks like. So I think that most people, many of the listeners might, might not realize that, you know, there's less than 50,000 people living in the Yukon, uh, less than 50,000 people living in the Northwest Territories or none of it. So, you know, that's a big part of our, our geography, but there's not a ton of people up there. So it gives us a, a, a better portrait of what's going on.
0: And do other countries do this, or is this something that, that Canada has decided to, to go out on its own?
2: As far as I know, this is the only country that's doing it, but I I could be corrected on that. Uh, And certainly StatsCan has been doing a lot of work at trying to create tools like this. So there's a tool that you can look at uh, immigration, uh, more specifically to play around so that we can dig into data. If you think about all the data that we have collected on us from Facebook or from Instagram or these kinds of things that give us some analytics that we can play around to get to know uh, who we are. Uh, StatsCan is doing that with our population data, and uh, I think it's a, a great tool to get young people interested in demography.
0: And you mentioned uh, this as far as uh, moving east to west or west to east or, or d- different provinces. And is it pretty accurate in that sense, in that I, I would imagine StatsCan would, would know uh, once somebody you know, applies for a driver's license or, or does something, change of address to pro- from province to province. Uh, but is it pretty accurate as far as really tracking the numbers
2: well, it, it's, it's pretty accurate. I would, I would argue that it's probably the most accurate uh, information we can get from government records. Uh, I believe that probably the interprovincial uh, uh, general tax records. Um, and so this is you know, updated once a year. And then, as I was saying, they'd use a quarterly update to try and recalibrate to make sure that it's tracking as an average over time.
0: And I suppose, too, it could lead to to bigger conversations or questions in that if you see the population of a certain province dropping dramatically, the main question or the obvious question might be, well, why is this happening? Uh, What impact does that have? And how can we maybe uh, stop that from happening more?
2: Well, certainly. It allows people to really see uh, where there's concentration of population and where parts of the country could use more population. Uh, so in my region, Atlantic Canada, you know, if, if somebody wants to come, come on down. It's, it's a good lifestyle. Uh, you live right by the ocean. I'm looking at it as I speak.
0: Uh, yeah, and it's it's a bit more affordable than living right by the ocean on the West Coast. <laughs>
2: It certainly is. You can uh, manage to, you know, buy a house and and uh, not spend too much time in traffic jam. Uh, it's a pretty good lifestyle. Um,
0: do you think is it? So it's been about a year since this was this tool is available. Uh, is it something that people are accessing or that people know about and are are really taking full advantage of it?
2: That I'm not 100% sure. Uh, I don't have estimates on how many people have used it, but certainly that it's getting attention uh, in the newspaper, that we're talking about it on your show, uh, is, is certainly promoting access to it. And I think what's most important about the tool is that it's uh, a gateway into all the other data that StatsCan has. So I think that it's an opportunity to recognize that uh, Statistics Canada provides a service for our population and allows us to get to know who we are. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of other tools inside uh, their website that we can probe other kinds of questions on our population, stuff around uh, ethnicity, about religion, uh, about environment, you name it. There's uh, information that the agency is collecting uh, to help us make better formed indes- uh, decisions about who we are in our community.
0: It is an interesting topic to think about that because while you might talk to people in your community or your neighbors or your coworkers, it's a whole different thing to be looking at province to province and really the makeup of the country.
2: Oh, certainly. You know, I think that this is one of the things is that we might think we know what's going on, but we we often don't know what's going on in the province next to us and and not even just the province next to us. You know, in Vancouver, somebody in Richmond might not really have an accurate picture of somebody in Surrey or in downtown Vancouver. And so tools like this uh, help us get to, to understand who we are.
0: All right. Uh, Well, it is an interesting one uh, for sure. And people can check it out uh, and uh, see for themselves uh, how things are changing in this country. Uh, Professor Ramos, thank you so much for joining us and for being with us this morning. Appreciate it.
2: Oh, my pleasure. Have a good weekend. All right. You too.